Welcome to the New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, the New Mind Creator. Today, I'll be interviewing Dr. Alan Weiser. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button so that you receive alerts when new episodes are available on Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, please leave me a review on iTunes or Spotify. Dr. Weiser, every, everything starts somewhere. Every great thing someone does it starts from an infancy stage that appears not much it doesn't appear like as much but just like a seed that is put in the ground and cultivated it becomes much bigger than the beginning phase and you've helped so many people throughout your years your beginning um, I'm sure is as interesting as now. Where did you grow up? I grew up uh, originally in the Bronx until about the age of nine and then out to Long Island for the rest of the time. New York, one of my favorite places to visit. Love that city. Yeah. (laughs) Has a heartbeat. So something interesting happened to you at the age of 12. Would you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, I was what you'd easily describe as a headstrong kid. And so I got interested in learning to do trick diving in the swimming pool and wanted to learn how to do a backflip and thought I could figure it out for myself. So found out that when you do a backflip, you need to dive out from the board, not straight up. Bottom line is I ended up hitting the board, breaking my neck, and spending the next three years convalescing from that. How did that affect you, I mean, emotionally, because you're 12 years old, and at that age, you know, I know when I was 12, I was running around, playing sports, doing X, Y, and Z, and that was like put on hold, and you have other kids that's doing that, and you're looking at them and you're not being able to. Right. I would say that it nearly wrecked me on every level. Uh, It started out with, I broke my neck, right? And I was trying to teach myself. And when they brought me to the hospital, the doctor walked in the room and literally said, if you don't die and you're not paralyzed, you'll be crippled for the rest of your life. And you can imagine hearing that at 12 years old, right? And being a child who was used to being very active, taking all kinds of risk. Uh, I didn't die. I wasn't paralyzed, but I was literally on my back with a brace on my neck for a year and had to learn how to walk again because I was so atrophied from being on my back. And the problem that I ran into, which I've worked through the rest of my life, is how that affected me emotionally. Uh, I chose to keep it to myself. I chose to put on a happy face. So nobody knew how frightened I was, how devastated. And as a result of the doctor's warning and my own reaction to what had happened, I stopped doing athletics. I stopped doing well in school at all. I almost flunked out of high school, which is interesting considering how far I've gone with education and blame myself in every way a person can. Fortunately for me, I'm the kind of person that's kind of hard to keep me down. So by the time I got to college, I decided to go, like, if I'm going to have to be a cripple, I might as well do this on my own terms. So I signed up for judo and trampoline. 
but that was my first entree into the martial arts and found out that I wasn't as fragile as the doctors told me. And frankly, throughout the rest of my life, have not ever had a problem with that. I spent over 50 years in the martial arts without having a problem. So I made it through on will and I pushed on through, but the emotional baggage trailed me. Uh, it bothered me when I was training. It caused problems in the rest of my life. It took me quite a while to work it out, uh, which is something that helped to shape my whole attitude about helping people with chronic pain and having a better understanding of what happens when you have something like that happen. It's devastating. Did Were you still having physical issues when you were in college as well as a result of the accident? No. Uh, I had been very cautious throughout high school and not engaged in sports or anything that was impact related. But once I started doing judo, which as you know, you get slammed to the ground quite a bit. Yes. Uh, and trampoline where I ran the risk again. I didn't have a problem. Never have had a problem with my neck. Uh, and I go like, okay, well, they may have thought that this was something I'd have to live with, but it turned out they were wrong, which by the way, I've often found to be the case with my patients where the doctors say this is kind of it for the rest of your life. And that is not always true. So the doctors told you one thing, but as you continue to live and evolve, you found out that you can do more once you challenge yourself. That's right. And the, the martial arts fit really well with this idea of pushing the limits and just seeing how far you can go. Uh, and that wasn't just on a physical level. It was also challenging myself emotionally and psychologically. Now, how did this affect your parents? Well, as I say, my family didn't really know how much I was suffering emotionally. What they saw that I was stoic and I was funny and I seemed to be willing to persevere in recovering. Um, my mother, of course, always worried. And my father tended to be more oriented towards you can take care of it. You know, you can fix it. So I didn't really give them much of an opportunity to know what I needed to be helped with emotionally. So you dealt with it on your own. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do now? How do you help people? That's a, <clears throat> a big question, actually. What I do now is essentially what I did for myself. I, I got involved working with people with chronic pain and illness about 20 years ago. But I had already worked for almost 15 years with the chronically mentally ill, about 10 of those years in a state mental hospital. And what I'd learned in my own life and was reiterated in the hospital and later on was you have to treat a person's life. They may have a mental illness, they may have a physical illness or an injury, but those things affect the person's entire life. And if you aim to treat the life, if you look at the person holistically, if you explore the existential side of this, you can be much more impactful in helping people recover. So that fit really well with my own journey throughout most of my life till I'd reached the point where I went from being a lawyer to being a psychologist, which was part of my journey. Yeah, that's an interesting journey from a lawyer to a psychologist. Um, you, so how did you reimagine your life? I, I would guess that you didn't really have someone you were looking at and emulating 
So what was it that drove you to reimagine your life and how did you do it? Well, it's a really good question. Uh, I can tell you that from the time I was a little kid, I was always fascinated by science fiction. Uh, not to mention cartoons, as strange as that may sound. And for me, they offered a sense of possibility that if you start to imagine what could be, what what is. And I've, I have been very fortunate in having people who recognize me throughout my life. The person who probably turned my life around the most was my high school chemistry teacher. Uh, part of the aftermath of that accident was that I ended up thinking that I was stupid and would, would have told you in high school that I wasn't doing well because I wasn't very smart. I didn't realize that was as a result of the accident. But my chemistry teacher challenged me. He said, why are you failing my class? I said, well, I'm not very smart. He goes, yes, you are. If we could have videotaped it, it was a very funny conversation. So he insisted on tutoring me. I ended up doing well in chemistry, which is quite a stretch for me. And that set the stage for me going, I don't really know who I am. I don't really know what I'm capable of. And there were other people along the way. I've been very fortunate uh, in college as an attorney into the rest of my life, a journey I took where I put myself out in the world and traveled for close to a year and ended up living in Marrakesh and, and being unofficially adopted by a Bedouin tribe. So I've had many, many people who've looked out for me, who've recognized me, who've helped me along the way, but I've always been a searcher. So you help people you know, with chronic pain and you do it from a holistic sense because you know the pain that person ex is experiencing, whether it's physical or emotional pain, causes them to tell themselves a story. That's right. because, because the pain is saying one thing, but what are we saying to ourselves? That's what's going to take us in whatever direction. That's right. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the title of my book, the first part is Unraveling the Mystery. And as you probably know, with chronic pain and illness, there's often a lot of mystery to why the pain, where is it coming from? Why is it responding to treatment the way it is? Uh, chronic pain uh, creates collateral damages. It's the part that people don't get. It doesn't just affect you physically, but it affects you uh, not, not just the pain of the injury, but for example, losing physical conditioning, sleep disruption, deactivation, all of those actually contribute to the pain and inhibit recovery. Uh, the impact on you as a person, your loss of identity, your self-esteem, there's easily up to 250 potential collateral damages that happen as a result of the injury, but are not the injury. And if you don't take those into account and, and make them part of the treatment plan, uh, for example, I go to the doctor, he's got MRIs of my low back. I say my pain's an eight on that zero to 10 scale. And he goes, I'm looking at the studies, it should be a four. What he's not taking into account is any of the collateral damages. So the message to me is he doesn't know what he's doing. The message to him is this guy's exaggerating. This becomes tragic uh, across over 2000 patients I've worked with that these, this information is not being used. It is not part of the model or the treatment plan. It's beyond the biopsychosocial model. It's an existential approach. And as you mentioned, you know, if you tell me you've lost your job, I can't tell you that I know what that means because it could mean something quite different to you than it would to me. So 
I've spent years exploring what can happen with chronic pain, but really understanding it by understanding the unique individual and then what it means to them and then working at a meaning level. And that of course led to an evolution of techniques that I use that we're currently referred to as the existential immune system. Now, you have, you know, concepts and techniques that you use when you're working with people with chronic pain and medical conditions. What is one, one of the most challenging uh, situations that you had to help someone with? You, uh, you don't have to, of course, say any names or anything, but sure. Yeah. Well, there's a number of different kinds of challenges, but the hardest part, and I would say I can generalize, is if you've ever suffered anything like this, something that's really impactful, as you know, the first part for people is, is just really being able to acknowledge. I never use the word accept with people, but I go, let's, you've got 30 things here that have happened to you. It's painful to own that and to acknowledge it, but if we don't, then we can't address it. The first step to empowerment, as far as I can tell, is acknowledging negative reality. So the challenge with people is where they stand in reference to being able to look at the reality of what they're dealing with. To not accept it and not buy into that sets the limit for the story, but to go like, okay, we need to look at this completely and then we need to work at it at the same level. Once a person's gotten to that, uh, but a lot of patients choose to stay angry or stay anxious or find some other way to not address the problem. It's like when people have something happen, they go, I can't believe it happened. A lot of my patients spend most of the time with their chronic pain going, I can't believe it happened, but never dealing with the fact that it did. I know it's almost like going around in a circle. Um, I can't believe this happened. This is just an example. And they get stuck in that. just constant and we think between 50 to 70,000 thoughts in a day and most of them are repetitive thoughts so now you would have to go in and try to help them break that cycle and choose something else like reimagine their lives and in that process I would assume that it could feel as though they have no control because now they're going from this blanket state like lioness on Charlie Brown dragging around this comfort blanket, even though it's a negative, it's, they have some sort of control. Now you have to launch out to do something different to break free. Yeah, yeah and there is an analogy to the martial arts. Uh, you, you would often hear me make those references what what evolved in work with my patients, because the way I am and the way I work is you present me with something that's very difficult or really hard to deal with. I'm going to figure out how to make it work if I can. I chose the most difficult martial arts school I could find because I thought that would challenge me to go beyond what I thought I could do. So when I began to see the extent of these problems, and fortunately, I've had really good supervision and training over the years since I became a psychologist. Uh, especially in understanding how to think about it more holistically. I, I know all the different systems. So uh, I, I looked at it and I, that's when, an, if, you, if you see what I've written, I began to understand that we have, we are provided with something by evolution. You know, millions of evolution. We're the most evolved machine on the planet as far as I can tell. 
I'm not talking about our actions, at least our equipment. Yes. So if we're designed for challenge, if we're designed to adapt and to survive and to thrive, then how do you do that? And that led through a number of different stages of thinking, including me going, it's not just a physical immune system. You have an emotional, ex existential, psychological immune system. And that's designed to help you. The problem is, is as you and I probably both know, where's the, where's the user's, user's manual, right? Mm. I have this incredible something we call a human, right? From my point of view, human literally means infinite potential. We love it. We're, we applaud it. Uh, but we don't seem to understand every one of us as a human being has this unlimited potential, right? That makes sense from the point of view of evolution. And then how do you concretize that into specific techniques? And that, that led to development of some tools that can break that denial, can help a person embrace their feelings, can help those pain patients actually experience compassion. Uh, most chronic pain patients eventually blame themselves even if they think somebody else failed them. So this way of approaching it and saying, look, yeah, you're dealing with incredibly difficult things to do, but so did Stephen Hawking. And other people that we look at, we go, how did they do that? They did that because it's possible. So I encourage people to explore what's possible. And then when they see that, seek opportunities. There's no one way to be in the world. There's no one way to be yourself. For everything you cannot do, there's some other way to get things done. So it's this kind of comprehensive blanket challenge to people. Yeah, you can be staying where you are. You can be stuck with what you're suffering, but the treatment for that is not limited. The physical treatment may be, but your potential in addressing this and dealing with it successfully, that's not limited. So the hum humans, we have unlimited potential, but it's like we're not told that enough. You know, it would be interesting to be... Um, Tell, told that over and over again when you are a kid and growing up and it almost becomes a part of you but if we don't get that we can still get to that space once we find out the information that we need and you're helping people understand this uh, throughout your work what are some tools that you use helping people okay uh, the number, I would say there's five techniques that I use. The one that's the most powerful is, and I will put this out there for you to consider, uh, and other people, as far as I can tell, it turns out that emotions actually have a functional purpose, that they're part of our toolkit, mm -hmm. uh, that, that our toolkit for survival, that existential immune system on a general level starts with thoughts and feelings and thoughts and feelings are the essential tools because all human experience is eventually translated into thoughts and feelings. And I noticed that chronic pain patients had so much anxiety and anger. At some point I said, is this just about suffering? Well, couldn't it be something more than that? And discovered that functional, that there, there are functional purposes, for example, most people don't know that anxiety is a fire alarm, that you'll never feel any kind of anxiety unless your needs are being threatened. And that anger is an action system to actually reduce threat. Now, anger is not bad and anxiety is not shameful. The misuse of those is why we call it that. 
So when people begin to go, okay, well, I've got a lot of anxiety and anger because most of my needs are threatened. And they go like, well, if I'm supposed to use these, how do you do that? And then we evolved techniques of application, which work incredibly well. And I, I say that with humility because I've used this with over 2000 patients and it works. And it, it cuts through because if you get down to the basic threat to needs, you're in a much more empowered zone to do something about it. You go from the iceberg you can see above the water to what's below the water. And you need to go there because what sunk the Titanic was not what you could see. So that technique alone, helping people understand how to use their emotions, uh, how to optimize the use of those, very powerful. And with thinking, you and I both know this, there are some forms of thought that are not helpful. There's a reason why nobody says trust your head, right? They say trust your gut. Well, that's telling you about trusting your emotions. What's the problem with thinking? Judgmental thinking, rationalizations, magical thinking, assumptions, belief-based thinking. There's, there's many great things about thinking, but those other things are distortions. So there's other techniques to help people challenge what are referred to as non-evolutionary-based thinking. It isn't just about judgmental because there are other forms that really disrupt addressing reality. So you kind of clean up your act with the way you think and how you use those tools. You address your emotions with knowing how to use them for their functional purpose. It's incredibly empowering to people. And then that's accompanied, accompanied by helping people to deal with conflict, which I tell people it's not about conflict resolution. It's about embracement. Conflict is there as a vehicle for people to come together. True. We, I've heard someone say this uh, before. They say we can't heal what we're unwilling to feel. And like you said, those emotions are alarm. They're not bad. It's just telling us, it's telling us something that's going on when uh, we feel threatened, our needs are threatened. And most of the time, it's within our being, how we're thinking. And that's causing the alarm to go off. The right. faulty way of thinking, you know, and it's usually a reaction to something. And we just keep those things and become stuck in that cycle. So, it's, I mean, just an amazing work that you're doing, especially from, you know, the pain standpoint of, you know, physical pain people may be having and don't know how much of an emotional toll that's taking as well and being able to address those things um you know emotions this day and age especially anxiety it seems to i don't know it seems to have grown over the last decade or so well the thing about anxiety that's really fascinating to me is that we're so we're so accustomed to thinking of it as something that we shouldn't have don't want to have uh, anxiety, from my point of view, is as natural as breathing. The reason why it becomes problematic for people is because they don't know how to use it. Mm. That's not to say that some things wouldn't overwhelm anyone, but frankly, when you know what it's for and how to make good use of it, it's kind of like, remember when you first started learning how to drive, you had to think about so much? Yes. And then you build in that muscle memory, and then you're kind of freestyling. When people learn how to use this emotion, they end up becoming like advanced martial artists. 
they can contend at a much higher level and with a, with a greater level of ease. So I think that anxiety is maligned, much maligned. So is anger. These, these emotions are not understood. They're not properly used. There's no anger management problem. There's an anger mismanagement problem. You know, I would suggest that every, I'll, I'll be really provocative here. I would suggest that every mental health disorder begins with the misuse of these two emotions. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, wow. So Bruce Lee, when I think of martial arts, I think uh -huh. of being settled in the moment and being at peace in the moment, whatever is going on. I remember Bruce Lee, the famed martial artist, he said, you know, um, everything in life is a force. I can either embrace it, deflect it, but why in the world would I ever oppose it? That's right. So these different things that's happening, like you're saying, we have to learn how to use it. So what are some ways that people can use anxiety for their benefit? Well, what I basically, the, the technique itself, there's actually a, a concrete specific cognitive technique, right? Mm -hmm. What the interesting part is, this technique is, is like a safety net. It'll get you into much deeper self-discovery related issues. So for example, let's say that I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to get fired for my job, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And I tell you, I'm really anxious because I'm going to get fired. Now, what I would say to a patient is, while that statement makes sense, I don't think that's your problem. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. It's generating thoughts. So one thought is I may not be able to provide for myself. So that's a need being threatened, right? Yes. But that person may also say that if I get fired, I'm going to feel diminished as a person. It's going to affect my self-esteem. So the process that we use helps people boil this down to specific needs that are being threatened. And then if I say, I tell you what, if you weren't going to feel diminished as a person, if you get fired, would you be as anxious about it? And more often than not, if that's the correct need, they'll go like, no, actually, no. And if, if it's about the threat to ability to provide, then we get into everything they know to demonstrate. Actually, you've had this happen before. You've always been able to overcome it. You're marketable. The, the, the challenge is to get people to the fundamental threat to needs and get through all of the information in between. For example, what's the problem when your child doesn't want to do their homework? What do you think most people say? Hmm. Uh, the problem is uh, they're being unruly or just lazy. No. That could well be part of the problem, but the real problem, if you boil it down to its essence, is it's a threat to your love of your child. Because if you didn't love your child, none of that would matter. Mm -hmm. And just imagine the conversation where you go, Johnny, I don't like the way you're behaving versus Johnny, I've got a problem. My problem is that I love you. And if you do that, this may cause you problems. I get that you may have a need to do that, but just, you know, my problem is that I care. That's a very different conversation very different conversation and I don't know um, if there are a lot of people that may know how to have that conversation um, so we have to be taught and get that information because usually a parent would respond in a way that um, you know you're lazy you're this you're right. that why are you not doing that but like you right. said the core 
the core of it is I love you and I really want to see you succeed. Yeah. Yeah. So the power in boiling it down, everybody knows if you really simplify a problem, you get it down to its fundamental issue, then you have much more power to do something about it. So it's that combination of clarifying what you're dealing with and then tapping into that potential and that power. And when people start to do this, Maurice, it, it is transformative. Uh, if I hadn't witnessed it happening with patients over the years, I wouldn't say this, but it's, it's amazing what happens when people channel that. Uh, there's a number of vignettes in my book about it, but that's why I'm inspired by my patients. That's, that's what people wonder, how do you do that? It's really hard work, and I go, it would be, if not for the fact that my patients are inspiring. Once they discover that, and I would suggest that the people that we admire who overcome things are probably people that never question self-love. Because if I had to boil it down to one of the greatest challenges for my patients is they find out they don't really love themselves unconditionally. Mm-hmm. That they actually think who you are is what defines self-esteem. I don't believe that for a minute. I believe what you are is what defines self-love. If you're infinite potential, how can you not love that? Who you are is a work in progress. You can change it if you don't like it. But why define yourself and how you feel about yourself based on who you are? doesn't make any sense to me. It's counter-evolutionary. So a part of our self-love is what we are? It's all of our self-love. It's all of our self-love. How can you not love the infinite potential? It's the coolest thing, right? Yes. Yes. Now, you may not like yourself or you may not like things about yourself, and that's fine because you can change it. Right? We're always changing and life's changing and situations change. We adapt. But to attach self-love to that, think of the danger, right? When you're in trouble, you're challenged. If you don't have 100% of yourself behind yourself, it's a lot harder to survive. It doesn't make any sense to me that self-love should be conditional on anything other than what you are so it's important to rectify this from within the person the individual because what tends to happen is we reach outside when we don't understand that truth we reach outside and we're saying okay does this person accept me does this person accept me and it's a unfulfilling process we will never get fulfilled from that because nobody could give it to us. We have to give it to ourselves. That's right. And what you said earlier about thinking is really important. And the way, the way that I tend to address that, I go, okay, what determines thoughts and feelings? This is one of my favorite questions to ask people. And uh, I won't put that question to you directly, but what I say is what determines thoughts and feelings is perception. And that's where the thinking part comes in, right? Mm-hmm. You have experiences, you think about your experience, you perceive it based on that. And then that determines what you're thinking and feeling after that. But what determines perception for me is the interesting question. And what I believe, and this gets into, I think, the work that you've done on the unconscious, what determines perception, I think, is awareness. And awareness encompasses the full range of your existence, your conscious thinking, your unconscious Your unconscious for me, I don't even think of it as the unconscious anymore. I think of it as a superconscious. That's your cosmic connection. That is a level of knowing, right? That is the thing that we refer to as intuition. You know, that is the information that you don't have to think about to get to. 
if you live within that reality, if you live at a higher level of awareness, your perception is changed. And if the awareness is more complete and holistic, then your thoughts and feelings are likely to accurately reflect reality. And, and learning how to trust that and to keep just trusting that it makes it even bigger because like, whatever we keep seeing, it becomes bigger. And what I see, what I could be full with of seeing causes me to be blind to something else. It's not that the other options aren't there, but it begins to be diminished the more I get fixated and focused on the right thing, it just revolutionizes everything because we're constantly choosing each and every day. We're constantly choosing every single day. Like, um, you know, in a garden, if anyone has ever planted a garden before or, you know, worked in a garden, you know, there are so many things in that garden, you know, but we have to be able to cultivate even though there are other things there and the more we cultivate and become full and fixated on that which we are and that's that infinite power we will transcend everything because we could get through different things in different ways different challenges not everyone gets through a challenge the same exact way but we can if we just begin to love ourselves more well like i said the idea that when people realize that their love has always been conditional it's really shocking and i work with people from every walk of life including some very successful powerful people but they all have the same problem until they run up against something as challenging as a chronic pain or illness problem they don't really know that but just like with the covid virus has really challenged people to ask who am i right where am i really at you know, how much of my life is, is just me going through the same routines over and over again. Um, That's why I tell people what's more important isn't so much what you know, it's the questions you ask. Because those questions can open the door to a higher level of understanding and a higher level of empowerment. The questions we ask ourselves, because we will get the answers. If as long as we have the right questions, we will always get the answers. And I guess that, you know, that does play into the part of us being infinite beings. We have it all. It's like everything we need is already in our lives. It's just right. awaiting our recognition of it. Right. Yeah. And I think that any form of therapy, many, many different kinds of life experiences, everything's the teacher, right? As far as I can tell, our entire environment and interaction with each other is designed to teach us. We use it in other fashion, but if you think about it, what's the point of evolution in the first place? Why go from inanimate life to life? And then where's that going? Uh, I don't know if you've heard the latest information about it's now beginning to be thought that there was something before the Big Bang, that before the Big Bang, there was literally an ocean of energy that occasionally had blips and flare-ups and those flare-ups turned into a big bang and then you have you know matter turning ultimately into living organisms so we're all part of that process there's a grand scheme here the the, the thing that mystics talk about and enlightened people 
there's a reality to it. The problem is that articulating it doesn't really help people. They have to experience the potential to really appreciate it. And with my patients, once they start experiencing the potential, they see that they can overcome things. They become much more interested in what they what they're able to do and not what they can't do. No, I hadn't heard that uh, of the latest there, what you just talked about. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So do you follow your patients after they leave, uh, you know, your treatment to see how things go? Uh, ordinarily not. Okay. Uh, usually by the time a patient and I have stopped working, we kind of know that they changed and it's, it's usually pervasive. Uh, the way they, what I talk to people about is rather than think about being broken or having a mental illness, I say, look, think about operating systems. You have an operating system that you evolved growing up, that you developed as a child. There may be some non-user friendly features in there like negative belief systems or other things. So let's evolve your operating system. Let's do U2.0. And this is pervasive. So the way people deal with their feelings, the way they interact with other people, the way they address their own needs, once that shifts qualitatively, I'm no longer dealing with the same person. Some of these transformations are really staggering uh, because they are so pervasive. Uh, And they're not based on, as I experienced in psychoanalysis, certain levels of insight over the years. It's based on sort of a, a holistic challenge to the way they operate. And a meaning-based approach to just being different. And it's the first thing I hear from patients within the first three or four months. I don't know if I have any less pain, but I don't feel the same way about it. Mm-hmm. So that awareness changes, the perception changes, thoughts and feelings change. That tends to be lifelong. And I have heard back from patients over the years, thanking me, letting me know that the journey continues, that it became self-perpetuating. Wow. That's just amazing. Now, self-confidence, um, you that was rattled for you after the accident and you went through your journey. Right. How, how would you describe self-confidence? Self-confidence. Uh, I think self-confidence is a state that you experience when you don't have anything to be concerned about. Okay. Yeah, it could be based on knowledge, on skills. Uh, It could be based on knowing that your self-worth is unassailable. Uh, I tend to think of self-confidence as being on that continuum. You can certainly base it on skill or on on knowledge. Uh, But ultimately, self-confidence, the fundamental self-confidence is I'm okay. Um, yeah. And, you know, there are so, you know, so many people that lack that and just lack that awareness and you're, you're okay. I remember, uh, several years ago now, uh, Whitney Houston, the famed singer, she passed away and they had the memorial service and they showed it on TV and I saw a replay of it and Kevin Costner Costner the actor he spoke uh, and we all know that they had a movie they did together the body right 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 
Yeah. And he was talking about, you know, Whitney was such a great singer that we all could witness and attest to. I mean, just a beautiful voice and a beautiful person. Right. But she didn't have the self-confidence. He talked about how, you know, she was constantly fighting to be good enough. Right. And, you know, she all these different journey things that happened in her life, all these different peaks and valleys, she was trying to be good enough. And she didn't realize that she was fine. She was good and she didn't have to reach outside of herself. And that's a place that we all have to come to on our journey. We okay. You know, we're okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I completely agree. I, I do think there's so many different ways to, to approach this, but from my point of view, what, what I don't claim to begin to understand is I think that we're all brought into this existence with this. We have this potential, right? We have this, these abilities, uh, we're, we're well designed for it. I don't think you have to develop self confidence or develop self love. It's a given, Mm. but from the moment of conception and on into birth and living through your childhood, there's all kinds of things that end up distorting and interfering with and creating obstacles. And in many ways, the work I think in all therapies is kind of cleaning house, right? Uh, I don't know Whitney on a personal level or, or the story of her life well enough, but I do know that often when people think they're never doing it well enough, we'll call it perfectionism. But perfectionism is a belief system which might have been developed as a child to keep them safe. The irony is that most of these distorted kinds of thinking that people have, nobody even knew they had. You know, the perfectionistic parent, right? The parent thinks they're just trying to teach the child how to do things really well so they can be successful. The child experiences the behavior is no matter what I do, it's never good enough. And then they wonder why they spend the rest of their life going, no matter what I do, it never seems like it's good enough. So when I mentioned earlier about clearing out the thinking process and, and using forms of thought that address the truth, and even if you find that you're, in some way you're lacking in something you want, the good news is if you want to build it, you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what we tell ourselves, like the illustration, the example you gave, you know, the parent says one thing and the child interprets it as something else. So what we are telling ourselves is vitally important. And if someone wanted to work with you, um, how would they be able to work with you? Are you working with people in just specific state or what? Yeah, I'm licensed in Washington State and New York. And uh, because of the pandemic for the last two years, I've been doing telemedicine. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm open to seeing people there. I'm also moving towards, because the book has been published, we're going to be putting classes out soon. There's two-thirds of the information in that book encapsulates everything we're talking about, and think of it as a textbook for the course. So I'm kind of hoping I can help people in other states, not by being the therapist, but by being a consultant and consulting on them based on the material. So at the moment, that's kind of the spread of it. I'm definitely seeing a lot of patients in Washington, some in New York, uh, and all of it online at the book. And what's the title of your book? 
book is called New Possibilities, Unraveling the Mystery and Mastering Chronic Pain. And where can people find your book? Okay. It's on Amazon. I'd suggest the easier route would be to go to our website, newoptionsinc.com. That'll direct you to the book and to the classes that'll be released in about a month. And are you on social media? We have a Facebook account and Instagram, but that's all new. And I'm not sure that people are aware enough yet to make that connection. We've, we've, we've kind of moved from the practice level to the, we're putting information out there and wanting to get people more aware of it. So if you go to the website, you can also access our social media. What's your one to grow on? What valuable piece of information would you like to leave our audience with? Understand your power. Understand that that power is innate. Understand that any experience that challenges you to find out what's possible is the way to go through your life. Uh, That's why I think that your entire life is a journey of self-discovery and finding balance. There are a lot of things in the world that are painful and go wrong, things we can't control, but there are many incredibly wonderful things. As far as I can tell, this planet is a gift. We're a gift to each other. We have yet to fully discover that, obviously. But if people get, you've got power. People out there right now, so many people are angry because they don't think they have power. They don't know. They don't get it. And so they rely on other people to be the power for them. And as you and I both know, that's incredibly dangerous and unnecessary. So know your power, know your potential. Find ways to find out what that potential is, not ways to demonstrate how helpless you are. Because you're not. Thank you for listening to The New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, The New Mind Creator. This podcast has been sponsored by Abundant Sports and True Serum. Head over to www.mauriceflornoy.com to receive more motivation and insight to help create your new mind.